trust me, the heater is working this morning. <laughs> uh, thank you to those of you who uh, put some time and, and effort um, coming in on your own time and, and working on our heater. Uh, we, we all really appreciate it. It's something that uh, you don't realize that you need until it goes out, uh, like so many other things in life, right? Well, there was a, a disturbing study uh, that I was reading this past week. It was released uh, last year, and it revealed that approximately... of the American population at any given moment, at any given time, 70% of the American public is on at least one prescription drug. And honestly, that number is a little bit staggering, uh, maybe especially when you realize what those prescription drugs are for. The number one thing is is antibiotics. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily uh, a bad thing. The prescriptions aren't necessarily uh, bad. You know, if you have allergies that are going to prevent you from breathing uh, and, and the stuff that's over the counter doesn't work, it's probably a good idea to get a prescription strength uh, allergy medication that allows you to continue living. Uh, so before I say anything else, let me just be clear that I am not saying that I'm against uh, all prescription uh, drugs necessarily. But what disturbs me about that 70%, number one is that uh, out of that 70%, uh, cut off about half of that, and about half of those people are on at least two prescription drugs. And number, uh, and the, the second thing that disturbs me about this number is that the second most commonly prescribed drug is antidepressants uh, by a long shot before you get to number three. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have antidepressant medications, prescription strength anti, uh, antidepressant medications. Some people have an underlying, you know, physiological problem that they need uh, antidepressants for. So uh, I'm not saying that nobody should have it. But in a report released in 2011 by the National Center for Health Statistics, it was revealed that the rate of antidepressant use in this country among both teens and adults uh, had increased by almost 400% between a study that was done from 1988 to 1994 and a study that was done in 2005 to 2008. 400% increase in antidepressants in between those two, uh, those two different studies. And most analysts uh, are, are going to say, you know, in a few years we'll be able to look back and see that the rate of antidepressant use in our country skyrocketed under uh, the, the conditions of our country as we're buried deep in this recession. But according to Dr. Mark Van Omeren, hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, he's he's uh, part of the World Health Organization's Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse. He says this, quote, a lot of people are getting antidepressants who should not be getting them. They've been given away just a little bit too loosely. So why are so many people being given prescriptions for antidepressants when they don't have the physiological, the underlying physiological need for them? I think there are probably a lot of reasons. You know, part of it could uh, probably be attributed to the fact that we've got this this kind of mentality in the West that there's just a pill for everything, and that you know we just we want to be happy. Happiness is the greatest virtue. Is, is there a pill for that? And, and so we're, we go exploring for that. There's there's part of our culture that does that. Uh, part of it also might have to do with the fact that our doctors get major incentives, major kickbacks for writing prescriptions uh, to their patients. Um, But I bet also part of it would be due to the fact uh, that there's this consumer demand. You know, where, where if you go to your doctor and they don't give you exactly what you want, you say, fine, I'll just take my business down to the next guy. 
and the next guy, and the next guy, until I get what I want. So there's that too. But see, what this all reveals, what, what this, this huge spike, this, this increase in antidepressants, uh, what it really reveals is that there's a part of us that wants to experience joyfulness. It's something that we far too often confuse with happiness. It's not the same thing, but as we've established already uh, earlier in our study on Philippians, happiness is an emotion that's based on our circumstances, whereas joy is a choice. We must make the choice to rejoice. And we'd be wise to note, by the way, that the Bible never has in the imperative tense the words, be happy. (laughs) It never says, be happy, uh, you know, because you can't force emotions. If somebody's not happy, you can't say, be happy, and they say, oh, why didn't I think of that, you know? As if it wasn't totally obvious to begin with. Uh, But the Bible does tell us to rejoice. It does. Yes, in the imperative tense, and that's because you can't command somebody to feel a certain way, but you can encourage somebody to adapt a certain mindset, a mentality. As Christians... Joy is a decision that we make which stems from knowing and being known by Jesus and having a deep trust in Him, in His work, in His sovereignty, in His all-sufficiency. And that means that it can't be based on our circumstances. Our choice to rejoice can't be based on our circumstances or anything else that this world has to offer for that matter. And that's the only explanation for why Paul would develop the theme of rejoicing throughout a letter that was written when he was facing the real possibility of death. If it was contingent upon our circumstances, we'd look for a book where Paul was just living large, and everything was going great, and he's saying, you should be happy, you should be rejoicing just like I am. But no, he's in prison, and he's saying, you should be rejoicing like I'm rejoicing. Now, having just become familiar with two of uh, Paul's friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus, uh, in the text that led us to this point, Paul's now going to turn his attention to warning the Philippians, offering a, a strict warning to avoid the tendency to look for joy in the wrong places. After all, it wasn't too far back. He told his readers to rejoice with him. That was in Philippians chapter 2, verse 18, right in the middle of the chapter. And so the question is, what's the basis of Paul's rejoicing, and what should be the basis of our rejoicing? And much of the third chapter of Philippians is going to be spent answering that very question. And so Paul continues writing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, just looking at the first part. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And that's a little bit confusing because he says finally, but he's only halfway through the book. Uh, so you might be thinking, wow, you know, is Paul a little bit long-winded with his final point or, or what? Uh, he, he has two chapters to go when he writes this, but actually the, the Greek word doesn't necessarily express the sense that Paul is, is coming to a conclusion. Uh, rather, it means regarding the, the rest. And we would look at that translation and say, well, what does that mean? We're going to get to that. But John MacArthur does note uh, that this is a word of transition, not conclusion, since half of Philippians follows it. And so we're asking the rest of what? Regarding the rest of what? And the answer is anything. The rest, of, the rest of life, the rest of your circumstances, anything. In other words, Paul's saying, whatever issues you have, whatever problems you are facing, Whatever is dividing you, whatever is going on in your life, regardless of whether you're in the midst of a good circumstance or or a bad situation, rejoice in the Lord. 
no matter what, no matter what, rejoice in the Lord. You know, that's such a short sentence, it's kind of automatic for us to just say, okay, just breeze right through it, you know, okay, rejoice in the Lord, okay, next, you know. Uh, It's almost like we would slip right by us without getting a whole lot of attention from us, but it's in the imperative tense, so we we better make sure we understand what it means. Uh, What does it mean to rejoice? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Does it mean that I am always feeling you know, so happy that no matter where I go, I've just got a smile on my face. You know, somebody can can throw a rock at me and uh, I'll just be smiling at them. Somebody can can key my car and and I've just got a smile on my face. Is is that what that, by the way, that happened to my mom this week. Uh, Somebody keyed her car. Uh, So does that mean that she should be happy about it? Does that mean she should rejoice in that situation? Does it mean that we're not allowed to really feel grief? Does it mean we shouldn't experience anger? Sorrow, sadness, despair. You know, reading this verse might give some people a sense of despair because they might not even be sure what it means to rejoice in the Lord. And as we look at this text, I think we'll find some helpful clues which should uh, help us to gain a deeper understanding of, of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. The first clue is that it was written in the imperative tense. It's a command. It's an instruction. It implies a, a few really important things. First of all, it implies that it's something that has to be done in accordance with our will. It has to be something that we choose to do. It's not something that's automatic to us. If it was automatic to us, he, he wouldn't have to tell us to do it. But it's not automatic. It's something that we need to be reminded to do. It also implies that this isn't just a suggestion. He's not saying, you know, if you feel like it, if you're having a really good day, Go ahead and just rejoice in the Lord. That's not what he's saying. It's not a suggestion. He, you know, he's, he's not given a first century rendition of, if you're happy and you know it, rejoice in the Lord. You know, it's not like that. He's not doing that. He's saying this is not a suggestion. There's no if about it. It's not contingent on anything except our will, our obedience. He's saying that this is something that we have to make the deliberate decision to do on a daily basis, which means it has to be based on our will has to be a choice rather than being based on our circumstances. The fact is that uh, this is not something that's optional for us. And that, 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 can be, uh, that, that really reveals that it's a matter of trusting the Lord. And, and, and looking at Him, in spite of our circumstances, God's Word instructs us to do it. So really, it's, it comes down to obedience. Are you going to choose to do what the Bible says? I mean, we don't want to just, you know, take this piece and this piece and that piece. You know, like, like you're at a cafeteria and, you know, I don't want any broccoli, but, ooh, look at those M&Ms and, and, and ice cream. You know, give me the good stuff, not the bad stuff. Give me the easy stuff, not the hard stuff. No, it's, it's, an, it's an issue of obedience. And, and, you know, this can be something that's, that feels really easy to obey, especially if life is going our way, especially if, you know, you just got a promotion, you just got a raise, you just got this or that, and, whoa, life is so good, and, and so you get this, this automatic sense of victorious joy about it, but what about the rest of the time? What about, you know, if, if you were to lose your job? What, what about, you know, when, you, when your parents uh, pass away? How do, you, how do you make the choice to rejoice when, it's in bad, when you're in bad circumstances, you know, when, when things are going good, it's easy. When things are going bad, it, it's not so easy 
So what about in those, in those hard times? What about when things aren't going so well for us? Well, let's remember that in the previous chapter, um, Paul was telling us that we should do all things without grumbling or complaining. This is another major hint as to what it means to rejoice in the Lord. For, earlier he said, don't, don't grumble, don't complain, do all things without grumbling or complaining. But the antithesis, the opposite of these things, the opposite of grumbling and complaining is rejoicing. One's a choice, so is the other. Grumbling, you can make the choice to grumble and complain, or you can make the choice to rejoice. So remember that uh, grumbling and complaining, remember what that really reveals. And Moses called the Israelites out on it. He said, you're, you're, not, you're not grumbling and complaining against me. You're grumbling and complaining against God. So really what it reveals is, is a distrust in God's sovereign power, his, his purposes. Uh, and the Israelites were a perfect illustration of that as they were going through the wilderness. And so thus, we have to understand that to rejoice in the biblical sense means to find contentment and trust in God. It means to find contentment and trust in God. It means remembering that he's got the situation under control and that nothing in our lives is accidental. There's nothing in our lives that's accidental. Not even the number of hairs on your head. You know, that's coming from me, you know. It's not accidental. God is... My daughter's back there laughing. <laughs> God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Notice the, the, the active nature of that verb. He is causing. He is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are therefore called according to his purposes. That's Romans 8.28. So Paul had learned to rejoice even in the midst of hardships and trials as evidenced by this letter, right? In the opening of his second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote this. He said, quote, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was, and here's, here's the important part, here's the part we've got to catch. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. What a great lesson. Things were not going their way. They thought they were going to die. And in the midst of that, they say, God has allowed it to be like this so that we look to him and not to ourselves. Trials very well may cause us to despair or to feel grief or to feel sorrow. Jesus is described by Isaiah as a man of sorrows. But beneath the surface, there's something steady. Beneath the surface, we have to learn to trust and abide in the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord. Think of it like a submarine in the midst of a, of a major storm, of a, of a you know, Category 4 hurricane. You know, there can be a hurricane going on up on the surface of the sea, but those in the submarine, when it's submerged a few hundred feet, they don't even notice anything. They have no idea that anything's going on. There's a steadiness there underneath the surface. So rejoicing in the Lord does not mean experiencing this superficial uh, fake happiness or exuberance on the surface, you know, which is based on, our, uh, on good circumstances. Rather, it means trusting that God is sovereign. And because he's sovereign, and because he's all-powerful, and because he's good, he either causes or he allows everything that comes to pass. And he's using every circumstance that we find ourselves in to teach us to grow in our walk with him. 
And sometimes that means good circumstances. And sometimes that means going through some storms. To the point where even if there is a storm on the surface of our lives, we are not shaken. We are not moved in our faith in Jesus. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. It's also worth noting that Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Those are key words too. To rejoice as the Holy Spirit is instructing us through Paul's pen requires that we first be in the Lord. You can't rejoice in the Lord if you are not personally in the Lord. So what does it mean to be in the Lord? It means that he is our source of life. Uh, it means that he's the foundation upon which we, we stand. Uh, it means that he's living in us. It means he's living through us. It means our lives are so intertwined with him and his life that we cannot bear the thought of living without him. And so we need to understand an important distinction between what Paul is telling us and what the world offers us through fields like pop psychology and, and positive thinking. This is not positive thinking. Do not mistake this for positive thinking. It's about right thinking. Right thinking. It's about understanding and thinking about the fact of who we are in Christ, in the Lord, and how we got there. We got there by grace, through faith in Jesus. Pop psychology and positive thinking will say, hey, you know, the, you've, you've got the source of joy inside of you. Everybody does. All you got to do is tap into it. All you got to do is find it. But that is not what Paul is telling us. He's not saying everybody has the, you know, the, their own source of joy inside of them. Paul is saying that our joy, the source of our joy, must be something outside of and other than ourselves. In essence, he's saying, find your reasons to rejoice. Find your joy exclusively in Jesus. So rejoicing in the Lord is not about avoiding difficult circumstances. It's not about uh, you know, avoiding or choosing not to deal with challenges and difficulties in life. It's about facing anything and everything that the enemy of God or that this world would throw at us, and trusting that because Jesus is living in us, and He's living through us, nothing can separate us from what God has done. Nothing can separate us from the fact that He is our Father. We belong to Him. Nothing can get in the way of that. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from His calling. Nothing can separate us from His purposes. And thus we can be content with whatever our portion in life might be. Whatever our circumstances might be, nothing's going to change the fact that we are safe and secure in the hands of God. And so we can rejoice in that. So Paul continues writing in verses, at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is a safeguard to you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Obviously, he's warning them. There's a lot of lookouts there. Look out, look out, look out. He's talking about some serious stuff. He wants to make sure that we don't miss this. So he's instructed his readers to rejoice multiple times already in this letter. He's not done. Uh, but it, it, it's so important uh, and it's, it's so crucial to the growth of our love for him and, and for his people that he's saying it's no trouble for him to write it again, which is kind of funny. I mean, it's like, 
you know, are they going to be sitting there thinking, boy, Paul, you've written that letter, that, that word so many times in this letter. Are you exhausted from writing that letter this, or that, that word at this point? Uh, he says, no, it's no trouble for me to write it again and again and again. In fact, I'll have more to say about it as we get further into the letter. But he wants us to understand why it's important that we make the choice to rejoice in the Lord. Because it's a safeguard. It keeps us safe. It's a type of protection. Our choice to rejoice protects us from something. So first he tells us to look out for or to be aware of evildoers who mutilate the flesh. Now it might feel, when you read this, it might feel like Paul's just kind of quickly changing the subject or you know, being kind of abrupt and going on to something else here, but we need to see how this is connected to rejoicing in the Lord. What is it that would distract us? What is it that would divert our attention away from rejoicing in the Lord? Thinking falsely about our relationship with Jesus, for one. That would cause us to to not look at, at Jesus, to not rejoice in the Lord. See, there were some false teachers who would go around after Paul. They were called Judaizers. They were going around telling people to look away from the indwelling presence, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And they were instructing people to look at the things that were outward, rites and rituals like circumcision. So they were practicing... These Judaizers, they were practicing and teaching, promoting obedience to the practice of these empty, meaningless rituals that were just on the surface. And their idea was that anybody who, who did these things on the surface, anybody who, who you know, had this checklist of things that they did, anybody who did that was rendered acceptable before God. But see, these people had it all backwards. They have the whole idea backwards, thinking that if somebody acts righteously, then that person must be saved, rather than seeing that because somebody is saved, then they will grow in acting righteously. Christianity teaches that we do good works because Jesus has saved us. We do not believe that he saves us so that we can be, uh, or that he saves us because we've done good works. We're saved for good works. We're not saved by good works. So rejoicing in the Lord means keeping our focus on Jesus, trusting in his goodness, and that safeguards us, that protects us from the idea, from getting the idea that there's any goodness in us apart from Jesus. Rejoicing means finding joy, confidence, and assurance in what Jesus has done rather than in what we have done. Rejoicing in the Lord reminds us that the work of Jesus was sufficient. It was sufficient to redeem us. It was sufficient to cleanse us and allow the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. See, this is the difference between saying, look at what the Lord has done for us and look at what I've done for the Lord. There's a major difference between those two things. Which one were the Judaizers? Yeah, look what I've done for the Lord. Look at all these great things that I've done. And Paul tells us, that those who get this all backwards and thus focus on outward things like rites and rituals as a measure of righteousness are dogs. They're evildoers, he said. They're, they're mutilators. No, really, Paul. Why don't you just tell us what you really think about these people, you know? He couldn't be a whole lot uh, more straightforward about how he feels about people who get this whole thing backwards, thinking and teaching that we're saved by works and not for works. 
So Paul uses something of a play on words here. The Greek word that gets translated as mutilate here uh, differs from circumcision only in the prefix. It's almost exactly the same word. The Greek pagans would make, uh, make cuts and mutilations in their skin as a means of rendering themselves pleasing to their false pagan gods. And the Jews looked at these people as barbaric wild dogs. And so Paul's saying that these Judaizers were teaching an equally worthless false religion. They're just as bad as these pagans who, who make cuts in their flesh to, to please idols. And so the term mutilate refers to the fact that they were you know, encouraging people to make marks in the flesh that had no significance whatsoever before God. Now, unfortunately, there are still plenty of people who try uh, to make faith visible, who live by a, a checklist, something that's, that's measurable and instituting you know, man-made rules, uh, li- living by this checklist rather than living by the, the leading and the prompting and, and sometimes the whispering of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are plenty of people who, who go to church because it's on a checklist. You have people who pray every day because it's on a checklist. You have people who get into their Bible every day because it's on a checklist. You have people who participate in Lent because it's on the checklist. And you might be thinking, what's wrong with you know, going to church or, or praying or studying the Bible or participating in Lent? There, there's nothing wrong with those things until you're doing those things for the sake of having bragging rights. So you're drawing the attention to yourself. Oh, look what I did. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post my, my picture of me with you know, my little ash cross on my forehead on Facebook so everybody can see that I, you know, I'm participating. I'm a good person. Where do they want the attention to be? On themselves rather than on the Lord Jesus. That person isn't rejoicing in the Lord. Rather, they're rejoicing in what they have done to prove themselves worthy, to prove their righteousness, which ironically hasn't proven their righteousness at all. Instead, it's proven their depravity through their adherence to a false religion, to works. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a a great, great uh, author and and preacher. Uh, If you ever have a chance to read any of his works, he was fantastic. He said this, there are many people who never know the joy of the Lord because they have failed to see themselves as miserable sinners. The only way to be happy in Christ is to be desperately unhappy without Him. You see, what happens when your sense of righteousness is based on a checklist of works is that you eventually tire from doing those works. You don't find joy in it anymore. And so it's never enough. It's never enough. And yet this appeals so strongly to our flesh, because it's something of an ego boost. We, we, we want our light to shine. The question is, is, is our light shining in a way that glorifies us, or in a way that glorifies Jesus? At some point, I'm convinced that this is something that we will all be tempted and sometimes persuaded to do. It's an issue of pride, which every single one of us struggles against. You know, we, we tend to love Titles. We tend to love recognition from others, but the same platform we desire to elevate ourselves upon is also an obstacle on our journey toward the type of mature, authentic, humble faith that Jesus has called us to. 
Our works will never, ever, ever be enough to earn us even an ounce of righteousness. Jesus, on the other hand, is enough. He's sufficient. There is nothing that you or I can do to become more righteous than he has made us. Think about that for a second. There is nothing that you and I can do to become more righteous than he has already made us. Is that awesome? There's nothing we can do to improve it. We're already 100%. You know, it's not like, okay, well, you know, we're going to put you around 90% and you're responsible for the 90 to 100%. That's what Mormons teach, by the way. That Jesus' righteousness isn't enough. You, you know, he, he redeems you up to about 90% and the other 10% is all on you. Jesus is enough. His, his sin, or our sin was imputed to him. His righteousness was imputed. It was transferred to us. And that means that we can't make ourselves more righteous before God. But it also means something else that's equally amazing. We can't render ourselves less righteous either. Because it's not based on us. It's not based on our works. That's one of those things that's so amazing and incomprehensible about God's grace. And embracing that truth is is part of learning to walk in grace. So in comparison to to the greatness of God's grace, our works are revealed to be less than amazing, quite less than amazing, and certainly not incomprehensible. Look at the contrast that Paul draws for us between those who teach uh, this false idea of our relationship with Jesus, those who teach the mutilation of the flesh and thereby practice this artificial, superficial faith. And he contrasts that with those who practice an authentic faith in Jesus. He says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, real, authentic faith isn't grounded in us or our works. It's based on Christ alone. It looks to what he's done. It trusts completely in him, what he did for us on Calvary. The mature believer knows that if it were not for God's grace, we would not last five seconds without Jesus as our source of life before we slip right back into sin. So notice that Paul says that we, we are the circumcision. Who's he talking about? I mean, he's, he's Jewish, so is he talking about Jews being the circumcision? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Christians. I mean, keep in mind, this letter was written to Gentile converts, and he's including them in this, this group in addition to himself. So he's not talking about his Jewish heritage. He's talking about his... And an hour standing in Christ. It had once been that the act of circumcision had set God's people apart from the pagan Gentile nations. And so it was the, the, the whole thing of circumcision was all about being set apart. But in Jesus, anyone who trusts in him and follows him is set apart from the world, is set apart from a world of, of unbelievers. And so circumcision is no longer a mark on one's body. It's a changing of the heart from the heart of stone into the heart of living flesh. It's a changed heart and it's a changed nature. Consider what Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said this, in him, talking about Jesus here, in him, 
also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision without hands. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about anything physical. He's talking about spiritual. True believers, those who have been regenerated and who have trusted fully in the work of Jesus on their behalf, that's the circumcision that Paul's talking about. He then goes on to give three characteristics of those who are the true circumcision, which demonstrate the authenticity of their faith in Jesus. First, he tells us they worship by the Spirit of God. They worship by the Spirit of God. See, worship, worship's tricky because we kind of think, you know, that it's when we're singing songs. You know, in church, it, we call it worship music, but we don't really refer to other things as worship. But the truth is, worship is an invisible thing that we can't see. It, it's something that only goes on between that person and God. It's something that only God can see that takes place in the heart. Worship isn't the act of, of singing songs necessarily, but it's something that's supposed to be happening inside of us when we do sing those songs. See, it's entirely possible to sing all of this great theology, you know, songs that are just solid doctrinally, and, and, and to do so beautifully, right on key, and yet be completely lost in sin. And it's not really worship. Really, all God sees it at is, as is, is lip service. The unregenerate heart cannot and will not worship God. But for the authentic believer, the means by which we offer praises to God comes through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Authentic worship is never about sounding good, thankfully for me, you know, um, honestly. Uh, It's not about sounding good. Uh, It's not about saying all the right things necessarily. Authentic worship is what happens when we turn our hearts to God and we declare His worth. And that, my friends, is how authentic worship is defined. In fact, you know where we get the word worship from? We get it from the old English word, worthship. Worthship. And so when we devote ourselves to his great worth, we're worshiping. That's what worship is. It's understanding and devoting ourselves to his great worth. It's not just something that happens in church on Sunday mornings. It's a lifestyle. It is a, it's a decision. It's, it's something that goes on between the heart and God, where the heart just opens up to God. It involves our internal devotion to living in Him and for Him. Secondly, authentic believers glory, or, or boast, depending on your translation, it's the same word, uh, in Christ Jesus. Authentic believers glory uh, or boast in Christ Jesus. And this is in stark contrast to the Judaizers or anybody else who boasts in their own works. Now, there are churches out there, they give boatloads of money to feed the homeless. And you know what they do? They, they publish it on their website. They, they talk about it all the time so that everybody knows. They'll, they'll even let the media know uh, so that it gets on the news, so that everybody knows how much they're giving to feed the homeless. Uh, there, are, there are churches out there that record and publicize the number of baptisms that they have, and they will publicly boast about what they are doing to serve the community, how many baptisms they have performed. In fact, there's a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, that's been scrutinized lately because what they do is they have plants in the congregation 
And when the time to have baptisms comes, uh, comes about, uh, these people are instructed to get up and take the longest way they possibly can through the crowd so that everybody can see them, so that those people will be prompted psychologically to go forward for baptism as well. It's psychological manipulation. That's, that's what it is. And they brag about it. They boast about it. One of our greatest temptations is to boast or glory in anything other than Christ Jesus. Authentic faith directs all glory, all boasting to Jesus, boasting of nothing but Jesus and only Jesus. Third, the authentic believer has no confidence in the flesh. They place no confidence in their works or any of the things that you can see or, or measure on the, on the surface externally. Their confidence isn't in the things that they have done or in the fact uh, that maybe things that they haven't done, if, you know, maybe if they've avoided a certain sin. Rather, their confidence is in Christ's atoning work and nothing else. That's what their confidence is in, realizing that the only reason that they can stand before God is because they're in Christ and He's in them. There are people out there who affirm this, this false doctrine called sinless perfectionism, which teaches basically that you can get to the point where you won't sin anymore. That's a lot of confidence in the flesh. That's a lot of faith in the flesh. Authentic faith has no such confidence. So putting all of this into context, into the context of this letter to the Philippians, it's this type of attitude that's, re- that's required for resolving conflict. Boy, if everybody had this attitude, there, there wouldn't be conflict in the church. There just wouldn't be. One of the wonderful things about the gospel is that it levels the playing field. There's nobody who's bigger. There's nobody who's lesser. We're all equal. There's you know, no, no female, no male, no slave, no free. All, everybody is on the same level. We're all equal before God. There, nobody's more qualified. Nobody has more of a right to boast about their titles or their, their personal sense of righteousness because we all recognize that salvation is not a reward for righteousness. Salvation is a gift to sinners. And you can't earn a gift. All you can do is receive it. All you can do is, is take it and live by it. So because the playing field is leveled by the gospel... These two people in Philippi who are, who are in the midst of this conflict, these two people have no right to pull rank with one another. You know, one might say, oh, you know, I, well, I'm the pastor. Oh, well, I'm a deacon. And, and, and on the world's, but by the world's measures, they'd say, oh, well, of course the pastor should, he, he's got the final say. Not exactly. That's not how it works. The pastor, I mean, that's just another gift. It doesn't make, it doesn't make somebody better than or, or uh, greater than anybody else. It's just another gift. That's all it is. I am the same as, as you guys. I've got the same standing before you guys. The only difference is God's going to cinch down on me a little harder about, uh, about the way I teach than he will for you. Uh, great. So I, I have a stricter accountability, and that's, uh, that's not necessarily anything to boast about. Uh, that's something to fear. But see, this type of mindset where everybody's equal keeps us humble. It keeps us humble. Finding our confidence in the Lord and not in the flesh is indeed a humbling reality. 
And this is all a lesson that Paul had learned as the Holy Spirit gave him perspective over the years on his own life. He knew what it was like to boast in the works of the flesh. He knew what it was like to base his idea of righteousness on the things that he was doing on the outside, things that people could see on the outside. And so we now come to the part of this passage where we actually learn a lot about Paul from from this section that we may not have gathered elsewhere in Scripture. He says this in verses 4 to 6. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul's saying, you think you've got a reason to boast about who you are or what you've got or what you've done? In the flesh. I've got one up on you. And so he goes on to tell us of his ancestry, his his orthodoxy, his external appearance of righteousness. If there was a desired status for Jews, man, Paul had it. He had it all. He was was a pure Jew, pure-blooded Jew. He wasn't a convert. His parents were both Jews. He was not a convert. He was uh, in the the most highly regarded tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin had stood by the tribe of Judah during the, uh, the civil war in Israel. And they were faithful. They, 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 that was the, the civil war divided the faithless from the faithful, and Benjamin was this little tribe. But they were faithful, and so they were admired. He was a Pharisee, which means that unlike groups like the, the Sadducees, uh, he practiced an orthodox Jewish faith. His doctrine was in line with traditional orthodox Judaism, Ju- Jewish uh, doctrine. The Pharisees prided themselves on the fact that they could not only uphold all these laws that God had given them, but they said, you know what, we'll throw a few more into the mix and we'll keep those too. So really what they were saying is we're more righteous than God's standard for us. Oh, and you want to talk about somebody who had zeal for God? Paul had zeal, so much zeal that he persecuted Christians whom he at one point had perceived as a doctrinally aberrant Jewish cult. So you want to talk about titles. Paul had the highest of them all as far as his people were concerned. And at one time, it was deeply satisfying for him. It was deeply satisfying to his flesh. And you know what? We're all tempted to get to the point where we feel the same way about ourselves. We're tempted to aim for titles so that we can get some glory for ourselves. I know when I see people who boast of being soul winners. Friends, there's only one soul winner, and his name's Jesus. He's the one who did it all on Calvary. He's the one who shed his blood. He is the one soul winner. We're not soul winners. All we can do is plant seeds. We can't win anything. He's already won. There's only one soul winner. And honestly, it breaks my heart when I see and hear people boasting about what they've done rather than stepping out of the picture completely so that Jesus alone can be glorified. It's also so deceptively tempting for us to want to take credit for things like lives being changed. So Paul concludes this section with with this radical statement. He says in verse 7, But, contrast, But whatever gain I had, I counted for loss, counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, all these titles, all these 
great things about him, all of these accolades, uh, had brought Paul, or had taught Paul uh, one thing, the futility of the flesh. It taught him that the flesh is absolutely worthless because it, what, what, he re, what he finally realizes in the flesh, it's all about him. It brought him glory. It gave him boasting rights. It made him feel like he should be treated a certain way because of his position and because of his title. And he should be uh, you know, respected by people because of his title. And so in that sense, the accomplishments and the titles that he had collected, would have, from the flesh's perspective, it's all gains. But Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What a difficult temptation that is for us. Because we're surrounded by people, neighbors, maybe even friends, who are trying to gain the world. That's what we're taught from day one, you know. When I was in seminary, I was working in a bank, uh, and in, in the entry area of the bank, they would often put up promotional uh, posters, you know, advertisements uh, for, for deals that they were running, and there was one particular which, which really caught my attention. I even took a picture of it, although I'm not, I'm not sure where I have it now. Uh, it said this, it said, quote, why just keep up with the Joneses when you can pass them up? And so the, you know, the promotion was for people to take out a second or sometimes a third mortgage on their homes so that they could invest their money in things. Things that the neighbors would covet so they would want to be like them. Things that their neighbors probably couldn't afford. Things that would draw them deeper and deeper into debt. And by the way, that was Wachovia Bank. That was one of the banks that uh, caused the bubble uh, in, the, in the mortgage uh, business. But Jesus was reminding us that there are more important things than gaining the world. Because the truth is, you know, we, we can collect tons of titles. We can, we can look at all these accomplishments and all these things like, you know, they're trophies that we keep in a trophy case in our hearts. But none of those things, none of those titles come with us to the grave. Jesus also said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot rejoice in the flesh and rejoice in the Lord. You cannot be confident in the flesh and be confident in Jesus. It's one or the other. It can't be both. You know, the principle that we learned in our, in our previous passage last week was the importance of selflessness. And Timothy and Epaphroditus were a great illustration of what it looks like to be selfless. But our passage today is a deeper glimpse of what this principle looks like, this principle of selflessness looks like when it's put into action in our lives. It results in us finding our greatest joy in Jesus rather than in ourselves, rather than in the things that we've done in the flesh, rather than in our titles and accomplishments. If you're tempted to find ultimate happiness or fulfillment in the things of the world and titles and, and deeds, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to Calvary. Look at the work that Jesus did on our behalf. If there's anything that you're, you're tempted to do for the sake of maintaining or, or improving you know, how spiritual you look on the, on the outside, don't put any confidence in it. But trust fully in Jesus instead. He is enough. 
He is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. When we understand and learn to trust in all that Jesus has done, has done for us and continues to do by the Holy Spirit, we'll learn the same lessons that Paul learned. Accomplishments and titles, they come and go. But they're all meaningless in comparison to the eternal life that we've been given in Christ, which was only made possible by the redeeming work of Christ on our behalf. We never could have earned it on our own. So look to what he did, not to what you've done. And let that be the basis of our confidence and our boasting in order that Jesus receives all the glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is such a challenge for us because life is so tumultuous, it's so unpredictable. There are good circumstances, there are bad circumstances, and sometimes, Lord, we can feel like we're just, we're in the dryer, going through a cycle, going through a spin cycle. But Lord, we thank you that by your Spirit, we can have a a contentment and an easiness within us underneath the surface. And we can rejoice in what you have done when the things that we've done don't earn us anything. We thank you, Lord, that you did it all. You paid it all. Lord, without you, we know that we would be lost. And so we glory in what you have done. We boast about what you have done. Lord, we pray that that would be shown in our lives, be evident in our lives that we give you the glory. Teach us, Lord, to step out of the limelight so that you can be glorified, so that it's never about us. Thank you, Lord, for your redeeming work on Calvary. Thank you for your love. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And we pray, Lord, that he would teach us, continue teaching us to look to the cross. We thank you for that, In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.